Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 21st of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The government came under some criticism from Fianna Fáil yesterday in the Dáil. The party leader, Micheál Martin, accused the government of using uh, the signing of uh, the €3 billion broadband contract as a political stunt to promote Fine Gael candidates. He was also skating over the Taoiseach for not being in the Dáil as Leo Bradker was, ironically enough, attending a political event in Croatia. But Michal Martin began his criticism of government on crime. People complain now regularly about the lack of guardy on our streets, the easy toleration of drug abuse, uh, open selling uh, of drugs and transactions on our streets, on our public transport system, uh, the injection of drugs uh, on our streets as well, and also a growing anti-social behaviour uh, on our streets, streets and in our parks, and the lack of basic resources then available to the Gardaí uh, in terms of technology and equipment and cars uh, to deal with all of this. The barbaric attack on Kevin Lunny and the years of intimidation without check against the fellow, his fellow directors was perhaps the worst manifestation of this. Micheál Martin's criticism continued when he told the story of 100 young people involved in a riot in Cork City Centre following a message that they had seen on social media. You must wear all black and glasses. You have one minute to yam that shop. Come at your own risk. Don't come if you cannot run. Now this planned riot and raid was similar to ones held in Belgium, London and Holland. Thankfully, the Gardaí intercepted this through the monitoring of social media. But it did necessitate the presence of the Garda Public Order Unit uh, and many Gardaí there uh, to, to stop this from happening. The fact, however, is that 100 youths actually responded to the call on social media. And what does that reflect? I think it reflects a lack of fear or concern regarding our authorities or indeed the consequences of such behaviour. 
As mentioned, uh, the Taoiseach wasn't in the doll to respond to Micheál Martin during leaders' questions yesterday. The Minister for Business deputised and Heather Humphreys joins us now. Good morning to you, Minister. Thank you for your time with us uh, this morning. Micheál Martin's argument yesterday was uh, that the government is losing the battle against crime. Is he right? No, he's not right. He's, uh, I, I don't agree with him. And, uh, of course, there will always be concern in communities about crime. But I just want to assure the people uh, that the government is investing significantly in the area. In fact, we're making unprecedented investment in Angarda Siakana so that they can provide the best possible service to all our communities, rural and urban, uh, nationwide. The Garda budget has never been so high. This year, uh, $1.76 billion was provided, and this is increasing to one. 1.88 billion in uh, 2020. So the ongoing investment is enabling the continued growth of Angarda Siakana towards the goal of having a workforce of 21,000 by 2021. Mm. And I think we should all acknowledge that uh, real progress is being made towards this goal. We now have approximately 14,200 Garda members. That's supported by over 2,900 Garda staff. And this increase in Garda numbers and the increase of 45% in Garda staff since the end of 2015 is resulting resulting in a significant increase in the policing hours available uh, nationwide. So the Garda Siakana's budget for 2020 will allow for the recruitment of up to 700 Garda as well as additional Garda staff depending uh, on what the Commissioner decides. So what, what is the problem Minister? You recognise the anxiety and concern uh, that people in communities feel in the Dáil, yes? And you talk about all of uh, this uh, investment, uh, but as Micheál Martin said, the perception is that people are fearless not just the gangs who are involved in the feud, let's say, in Drogheda or the people behind uh, the attacks on uh, the Quinn uh, group uh, or indeed uh, the um, thugs uh, that uh, may have involved themselves in uh, riot in Cork uh, had uh, they not been intercepted. Uh, Is the problem, though, perception that people fear something that isn't realistic? Well, of course, there's always going to be a concern and there are always going to be criminals. But uh, the point is that uh, the guards uh, are continuing uh, to to fight this criminality. And I'm delighted that uh, good progress has been made on the Kevin Lunny case because that was uh, absolutely awful what happened to Kevin. And progress has been made in that particular case. And the Gardaí are uh, making good inroads in terms of... uh, identifying criminals and arresting criminals. And of course in the border region there's a new armed support unit in Cavan and this complements the two existing units in Dundalk and in Ballyshannon. There's an additional 45 Gardaí will also be assigned to the border region at the end of November. Uh, and uh, But in, in, in recent times there has been very significant increase in Garda resources. So you must remember that during uh, the difficult uh, years of the downturn Templemore was closed and there were no Gardaí being recruited. We have opened Templemore mm. and uh, year on year we have uh, recruited more and more Gardaí. And, I, I, and, you know, it is making a difference. Okay. In fact, we're one of the safest countries in the world to live in. All right. Uh, I think you reminded Micheál Martin that it was his party uh, that closed Templemore uh, previously. Uh, but let's uh, talk about uh, the broadband plan, uh, a subject uh, that came uh, under some criticism yesterday because of how the contract uh, was signed. Uh, was it a publicity stunt? It was absolutely not a publicity stunt. In fact, the signing of the contract for the National Broadband Plan was a hugely important moment for rural Ireland because broadband will be the biggest investment ever made in rural Ireland. So Tuesday was a historic day. And this contract means that every home, every school, farm, 
and business in Ireland will get access to high-speed broadband and we will reach 1.1 million people. That's almost a quarter of the population. No part of the country will be left behind uh, in securing the jobs and the opportunities for the future because we live in a world of that's changing so quickly every day. It's a technology-based world and we must have... Uh, access to uh, high-speed broadband if we're going to continue uh, to give every part of the country uh, the opportunities that they deserve because we're going to have more people working from home because that obviously has a better work-life balance. So that means fewer car journeys and fewer greenhouse gas emissions. So broadband gives every part of the country that opportunity so that you can work from home and work remotely. Right. Uh, And uh, will 1.1 million people want it? Yes, well, uh, there is. It's going to change. The, uh, actually, they're, they're going to need it because uh, the, the way the world is changing, uh, um, access to the internet it will be essential because it'll cover healthcare, it'll cover many different aspects mm. of our lives. And uh, I'm fortunate enough uh, that uh, Science Foundation Ireland is a body under my uh, remit here in the department. And what's happening in terms of new technology and investment in research is just, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. Well, if and they want it and they avail of the opportunity to have it, uh, it'll cost about €6,000 to connect each of them, won't it? Yeah, well, it's going to cost... Uh, um, a maximum of uh, three billion euros, mm. uh, and uh, of course, built into that, uh, there's a, a VAT of um, the there's VAT, and there's mm. also a contingency. So yes, it is going to cost money. About but, six thousand uh, to connect each of the five hundred forty-seven thousand homes. But if only twenty percent of those premises uh, avail of the opportunity, how much is it going to cost then? Forty thousand. No, uh, it's we've done a lot of work on this, and uh, there's a demand across the country for high-speed broadband. Everybody is connected. And I'll just give you an example. Uh, it took the telephone 75 years mm. to reach 50 million users. It took the radio 38 years to reach 50 million users. It took Twitter nine months to reach 50 million users. And uh, it took... Uh, as I said, Pokemon Go, just 19 days to reach 50 million users. And that shows you uh, the huge power of the internet. So uh, as we talk on this phone now, this is as slow as it gets. We need broadband right across the country to benefit the changes that are coming right down the track at us. So it's going to open up a world of opportunity to our rural businesses uh, and especially, as I said, when it comes to flexible working options, including remote working. And uh, in terms of uh, uh, healthcare, you can see that uh, people, we want people to remain longer in their own homes and to be able to stay at home. So there's going to be different uh, methods where people can be monitored at home and, and we need the internet to be able to do that. Right. Uh, despite uh, the advice of uh, the General Secretary of uh, the Department of Communications, Robert Watt, uh, seems to feel this is foolhardy. Yeah, well, uh, uh, you know, the Department of um, of um, of um, Expenditure and Reform, uh, they, Robert Watt has, has, has expressed his views. But the same department also advised that we shouldn't go ahead with uh, rural electrification. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, officials obviously uh, give advice, but ultimately it's up to uh, the Minister of the Day and the government to make the decision uh, that we know the people of Ireland will benefit from. So if you were building uh, three billion on a new metro in Dublin, nobody would be given out. Uh, but I can assure you that in terms of rural Ireland, this is absolutely essential.
Okay. Uh, will it be three billion? Uh, can it be capped at three billion, or is uh, there the possibility uh, that uh, infl- that figure will inflate over a period of time? No. no, the maximum possible cost to the state will be three billion over twenty-five years, and uh, it'll include include five hundred and forty-five million for contingency and three hundred and fifty-four million in VAT, which will be paid to the revenue commissioners uh, as the subsidy is spent. So the VAT will come back. Uh, to the Exchequer and uh, the country is going to be divided into 110 areas of around 5,000 premises and uh, the subsidy uh, paid to the National Broadband Ireland in arrears uh, as, as each of the 110 areas are completed. So there's nothing paid until uh, until the work is done and we're very satisfied that uh, the £3 billion is the maximum possible cost and we do expect that uh, it'll possibly come in under that price. Okay, Minister, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on Thank the programme this morning. That's the Minister for Business, Enterprise and Innovation, Heather Humphreys, who's a Finnegale TD for Kevin Monaghan. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Children at Risk in Ireland Foundation has published its annual report for 2018 over the course of the year. It provided support directly and indirectly to over a 1,000 children, 1,054 children to be exact. It says its helpline is the gateway into its services and that it's predominantly mothers that call carry. They had 807 calls last year and Eve Farrell, Executive Director with the Carry Foundation, has been telling me that it has been a very difficult year for some of the women who had to make this terrible call. Well, um, that's absolutely correct. The majority of callers into our helpline last year were females and the majority of them were women. And the reasons why they called were mainly around uh, sexual assault, rape or sexualized behaviours. So this could be um, that they have just gotten a disclosure from their child. Um, It could be that they're trying to um, access certain services or get information as to what to do next. It could be sometimes, and this is often the case, where that which um, has happened to our child has triggered something that has happened to us when we were children. So, excuse me. So sometimes mothers are quite triggered Mm. by the events that they've heard. And also it's it's deeply distressing to find out that um, for a lot of parents, their worst fear has come true Mm. and that something has happened to their child. Well, that's what I mean. The natural instinct of a a parent is to protect their child. And when you find out that such a a violation uh, of your child has taken place, uh, it, it must be very difficult to contend with. It's extremely difficult to contend with and there's huge anxiety around it um, and, and, and parents bear the weight of that anxiety. But what I would say about that is, you know, when a child has been able to tell their story in a safe way, there's a wonderful shift of anxiety that moves from the child's shoulders onto the parent's shoulders mm. because now they're in a space where they're going to be protected. And that feels much better for the child whilst it's hugely uh, upsetting for the parent, I would say to parents that, you know, sometimes that that's what can happen. And if you're bearing the brunt of that anxiety, uh, we're here to help if you need it. OK, and obviously uh, the person that matters most in all of this is uh, the child. Uh, and of uh, the 807 calls that you received last year, it's shocking to think that 34% of uh, the complaints related to, to children under the age of 10. Perhaps we can talk about the children and their experiences in a moment. Uh, but who is it that has been abusing them? Well, um, 
this can happen in, in, in every walk of life. And what I'd say is, is that there is no two families that are the same. There's uh, no two abuses that are the same and there's no two impacts that are the same. And so, you know, the alleged abuse um, has happened at the hands of family members, happened at the hands of extended family members. Sometimes um, it's happened, um, you know, for, uh, on a grandparent level. Uh, it happens outside of the family, um, with friends of the family. It happens with uh, teenagers. We have peer abuse that's going on as well that we can see. So there's an array of, of, of ways in which this can happen. And when you talk about peer abuse with older children, uh, you're talking about uh, children uh, sexually assaulting other children. So, you know, we provide uh, therapeutic intervention for children up to the age of 12 who present with sexualized behaviours, sexually harmful behaviours. Um, and there are other wonderful services out there to um, provide support for children who are older who are doing that. But what we find with the calls that come in and what we find through our forensic service sometimes is that um, teenagers can um, present through one of our services after a disclosure that an assault has taken place whilst they've been out with their peers. Right. And what impact does uh, that uh, type of assault have on the child? You said uh, it uh, can differ from person to person. Absolutely. And it differs from person to person because um, their experience is different and what has happened to them is different. So, you know, I mean, you have added dimensions of trauma onto situations like that, for example, if it's been recorded or if it's been shared. There's those those additional um, distresses to deal with. So it's really a case-by-case scenario of how the child has been impacted by that. Um, And there's a real opportunity here to talk about that for a minute, you know, where we, we often talk about, you know, how important it is for us as parents to have conversations with our teenagers about how to stay safe. And those conversations are important. But I think it's also important to start having conversations with our teenagers about what respect looks like and what consent looks like. And I would say that before you do something, before you take a photograph, before you press record, before you press share, have a think about how you would feel if this was happening to your little brother or your little sister or your mom or your grandmother. And if that's a thought that is uncomfortable or distressing for you, there's a real opportunity there for you to make a different choice. Okay, and uh, I take it uh, that some children will tell their parents immediately if something has happened to them and others won't uh, and others might wait a year, five years, 10 years, 20 Mm -hmm. years, 30 years before speaking to anybody. Yeah, yeah, that is very true, and it's and it's different for everybody, and and the shame is is different for everybody, and you know, whilst that's everybody's experiences, and we're here to respect all of that, um, the wonderful thing about communicating this stuff in a safe way, um, to a safe person, is that there's access to supports and there's access to interventions that can happen, and um, there is nothing to be ashamed of in this. There is no shame that belongs to you as a child. This is shame that has Mm. been put on you by somebody else. And so um, if there's anybody out there that feels that they have a safe person in their life that they want to talk to about this, maybe that's something they can think about. Mm. Is there any point to it? I mean, if something like this happened to you 20, 30 years ago, uh, is talking about it going to undo it? Or is it going to improve your life? Um, well, 
Absolutely. The personal benefits are that you can get from doing this are for you to really decide about that. But what I can speak about is the societal benefits. And often people say, well, this happened so many years ago. Is there a point to talking about it? And I think there's a really good point to talking about it because we don't know whether that person that did that still has access to children. So whilst this is a historic experience, it doesn't mean that the risk is historic with the person who did it. What if they're dead? That, um, what if they're dead? Mm. And what if we think they're dead and mm. they're not? I think it's really important to um, to be able to speak as irrespective, mm. you know. And uh, Jimmy Savile is an example of the benefits of that even when they've passed. Mm. Uh, and that uh, it helped other people uh, who fell victim to Jimmy Savile when people started to come forward. Uh, other people yeah. then realised, well, I wasn't the only one. Uh, in terms of dealing with children uh, who have been abused in more recent times, uh, not going back over 10, 20, 30 years, as the case may be, uh, how difficult is it to speak to them given uh, the age of uh, the children that you're dealing with, 7 to 12 years of age, uh, the conversations can be very difficult. I take it they have little understanding of what's happened to them in many cases. Well, the model of therapy that we provide um, for children and carry is, um, well, it's child-led and it's um, play-centred. So um, play is a wonderful language and a language that children are very articulate in. And we communicate in very different ways and we communicate in the ways that we know how. And it's important that um, children don't um, reach our communication levels, but that we reach children's communication levels. So that's why we have specially qualified uh, play therapists that work with children, because we can communicate in different ways. And they do very powerfully so. Okay, and there is a, a helpline if uh, people would like to contact you. It's eighteen ninety nine two four five six seven. That's eighteen ninety nine two four five six seven. That's a, a national helpline number for people. And thank you indeed for speaking to us today, Eve. Thank you so much. Thank you, Eve Farrell, Executive Director with the Carry Foundation. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Joint Committee on Health heard uh, from uh, the Mental Health Commission and uh, the Inspector of Mental Health Services yesterday on workforce planning in the mental health care sector and also heard from SIP2's Paul Bell on workforce planning in the health sector. And Paul Bell joins us now. Paul Bell, Health Division Organiser with uh, SIP2. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, there was a, a lot of criticism uh, that uh, you levelled uh, against the HSE because of a recruitment embargo uh, that uh, stops them from employing people. Uh, but you were making the point that they spend a lot of money employing people, agency people, the equivalent of 500,000 working hours this year uh, at a cost of €200 million Euro in 2019. Well, there are two stunning figures, Michael, in relation to agency spend. As of January 1, uh, 2019, uh, 60 million euros has been spent on agency healthcare assistance and 50 million euros spent on agency nurses and midwives. Uh, and that's excluding other professionals such as doctors and radiographers, radiotherapists uh, and therapy grades. And that figure has been disimproving for the last four to five years. Uh, and then on, on top of that, of course, uh, is the issue concerning what 
we describe as a, a recruitment embargo uh, and what the HSE unofficially described as a recruitment pause. Mm. So this is ongoing. There are pe- people in the health services being offered you know, promotional jobs or people outside the health service applying for jobs basically told, you have now, uh, we're going to offer you a contract of employment, but we cannot commence a starting date with you until further notice, which obviously means in most cases you're going to lose those people to other employers, and that is unacceptable. Uh, to, to us and unacceptable mm. to the public. And the question you were asking yesterday, indeed, uh, the question you've been asking for years on end is why don't you just give these people a job, employ them directly instead of using an agency and cut out the middleman? It's bound to be much cheaper. Uh, but you gave a, an answer uh, to that question, I, I think yourself, at least uh, to some degree. Explain to us uh, the problem that the HSE has had with some of uh, these agency staff and having to pay finders fees. Yes, well what has happened in, in some cases where, whereby an agency member of staff has been working for a, a period of time uh, with the HSE uh, where the HSE determined look, we would like to now employ that individual because we're now in a position to do so. We have a budget. Uh, in some cases uh, what has happened is that the agency would say well we're entitled now to what's regarded as a finder's fee uh, and the HSE then uh, have to pay a fee to the agency because Strictly speaking, as far as the agency is concerned, they have provided that labour resource. Uh, I'm informed, Michael, uh, that that's not an unusual uh, practice. It's certainly unacceptable, though, on the basis that uh, the the HSE are very, very strapped in relation to hiring people or having people on their headcount. And that's what the agency, uh, the relationship with the agency seems to be. It's masking the fact that you need these employees, but you can't have them as permanent Mm. employees. So we raised this issue yesterday because we do believe it's something that has to be addressed. Remember, when an agency member of staff is hired, the, under the EU directive, the agency member of staff must be paid the same uh, as a direct employee, which is something that we would have fought for. But on top of that, then, there's a commission, which can range between 4 and 8%. And then on top of that cost, Michael, is a 23% VAT bill as well. That is not sustainable. It's costing a huge amount of money, and it's also really being done in a way that is unnecessary and we need to hire more people and save the money that you're after referring to. So if, for example, uh, you're employing somebody through an agency and they're being paid 30000 it's costing the HSE 35000 uh, Even higher in some cases because you you put the, uh, it can be between 4 and 8% uh, commission. Mm, and, and then, then you've the VAT on top. VAT mm. On top. Uh, and, and by the way, uh, there was a ludicrous uh, suggestion at one time where the state was indicating, well, it doesn't really matter because we get the VAT back anyway. Mm. And the, the answer to that very simply is, hold on a minute. Okay. It, it, it means that the, the, the health service budget still has to consider that it has to, to raise that revenue to pay that cost. And that, that, that type of mathematics, it just doesn't work out. But we did raise the other issue, Michael, yesterday, but the Joint Iraqis Committee on Health, and we were very, very pleased uh, at the way the, that uh, process was conducted by uh, Chairman Louise O'Reilly. In that sense, we, we raised the fact that um, where we have issues ongoing with agency, the, the final decision seems to be resting with the Department of Public Expenditure mm. and Reform or the Department of Finance. And this is unacceptable because the health service executive managers, and remember, they're putting the budget forward saying, this is what we require on the basis of anticipated demand. But the final decision being made on the basis of, well, how much money 
Are we going to give to the health service? And how much money are we not going to give to the health service? Which just doesn't match. Okay, but I just want to try and keep it simple. Let's say you're employing somebody uh, who is on 30,000. It mm-hmm. co- it's cost the HSE maybe 40,000 to employ yeah. that person yeah. for yeah. 30,000. Yeah. And if after, let's say, a year, they decide, well, there's a full-time job there, so mm-hmm. why don't we pay 30,000 instead of 40,000 and employ that person? Uh, they're not able to uh, because there's a, a rule in place that they have to wait two years before they employ them yeah, if they've worked uh, for an yeah, agency. This is, this is a situation that has arisen in, in, in numerous cases that's been brought to our attention. And, and by the way, Mike, mm. in some cases, the agency has just decided we will pay the, the fee because, it, again, it makes sense to pay the fee but you can't pay ra- ra- rather than wait two years, yeah, yeah. And, and and this is the point I'm trying to get to because uh, yeah. uh, I think a lot of people were flabbergasted when you outlined how much that fee is. How much is the HSE paying on occasion? Well, uh, in some cases it could be two thousand euros. In some cases it could be ten thousand euros. Ten thousand euro yeah. to yeah. employ the person that they've already been employing at an inflated rate. Absolutely, and you see, at the end of the day, agency work is necessary within the health service. Of course it is. People get sick, people go on maternity leave, all sorts of things. But it was never meant to use for long term. I mean, in in Our Lady of Lowe's Hospital and in Cavan General Hospital, uh, there would have been administrative staff uh, on contract there for in excess of four four or five years. Mm. Uh, Again, uh, because of the embargo, what's, what's going on, Michael, is that the health service executive are saying, we need these staff because they're not employed by us, does not mean we don't need them. So we have to find another mechanism, and that mechanism has been agency. And it's absolutely unsustainable. Uh, we look at health service budgets every year. We want to see the budget uh, addressed. We want to see good value for money to the taxpayer. And we want to see good quality jobs created in the health service. Right, so that's absolutely bizarre. Uh, I mean, uh, I think to anybody's mind that is totally bizarre uh, and then you talked about the bu- bu- bureaucracy in filling posts and how uh, you have to go through the procedure and then go through it again and it's a, a question of jumping through hoops it would seem and that sometimes to replace somebody who's on maternity leave the replacement is only approved weeks before the person is due to return back to work This is a common uh, problem especially in areas Michael, of uh, uh, high levels of skilled staff, like the likes of radiographers or radiotherapists. Uh, We've had cases whereby um, uh, an employee would notify our line manager, we wish to now advise that we need to take maternity leave, or somebody that may wish to take a long-term sick leave for maybe a very serious issue such as cancer. Uh, Good notice is given by the employee. Line manager approves that the place needs to to be filled in the absence of the employee. That goes, goes into um, a central um, uh, bureaucracy, which we would call, uh, it's all, and then it's all based on, on cost. So when the cost is approved for the post or for the replacement of the post, the line manager then has to speak, speak uh, well, can I, can I now engage somebody? And that goes to the recruitment service and the health service executive, and that process can take literally six to eight to 12 months. And that, that is absolutely unacceptable. Uh, and that also is a similar system when uh, the HSE go to recruit permanent employees. Again, you would see the um, the pause on recruitment. Uh, we would call it the, an embargo, which it is an embargo. Uh, uh, that's that practice. And really what that means is that the members of staff in those departments have to pick up that slack in the interim period. 
If not, the service suffers and then the public suffer. Okay, well... It's uh, the public uh, that suffers because the system is inefficient because of the inefficiencies uh, that have led to these shortages. There there is a a plan, a long-term plan, uh, which uh, I think a lot of people agree would solve many of uh, the problems in the health service, the so-called Slongicare problem, but SIPTU has concerns about how that's being implemented. Well, absolutely. Uh, Government uh, and all political parties have confirmed over probably two years ago now, Michael, have, to, have stated that there needs to be a certain way of delivering health services in our country, in community care, in institutional care, in acute care, and, uh, you know, by and large, the public understand this is what has to happen. That programme, is, uh, according to figures that have been published, would you know, require an investment of 680 million euros. Uh, the last two years, what we've seen from government, and which has not been explained, is that uh, approximately 20, 20 billion euros each year has been put into that project. Now, that does not demonstrate a political commitment from the present government of what exactly uh, is going to happen to Slaunch of Care. And what we fear, fear uh, both as representing health workers and as uh, trying to advocate for, for public health services, is that eventually the system will completely crash and be overwhelmed. And that is not good. It's something, by the way, I know it's not just for the trade union movement, it's also something for the political parties who signed up to launch care to address, and they need to address that soon, because this project requires very serious focused investment. Uh, but you're talking uh, about uh, part of a structural uh deficit uh, that there is in the HSE, and when it comes to recruitment, you're saying uh, that how they approach it should be completely overhauled. Absolutely. And by the way, what's most interesting, and we did not really suggest it because we didn't wish to distract, but uh, the recruitment service or national recruitment service that the health service executive uses, and by the way, that's different from the voluntary hospital sector, like the likes of the Matter or Beaumont or Tala mm. or St. Vincent University Hospital, who recruit directly themselves. Uh, when uh, Antishak was Minister for Health himself, he did describe the national recruitment service as not being fit for purpose, as not being responsive to the needs uh, of the HSE hospitals or health services and, and basically should be overhauled. And now, it is quite some time since our uh, t has been Minister for Health and nothing has been done to address that issue and it has continued. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, you, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Following uh, the appearance in front of uh, the Oireachtas Health Committee yesterday, that's Paul Bell, SIPSU's Health Division Organiser. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to everybody listening in. Some comments on the broadband. Mark wants to know how Minister Humphreys can give a guarantee that the broadband plan won't overrun on costs like she tried to do on the show this morning. Sure, who knows, Michael, what problems or issues might crop up over the next couple of years. We were given similar reassurances with the National Children's Hospital and we all know how that worked out. Mm, Okay. Uh, Another listener, call me cynical, Michael, but you would have to wonder about the timing of the broadband plan being signed off on what with the by-elections happening next week. Mm. Don't get me wrong, I really do welcome it, but I'm sure that Fine Gael 
will be hoping it will put a few votes their way. Okay, all right. Well, we'll Jim's, have to call you cynical, so. Jim says yeah. broadband is absolutely necessary, uh, especially for businesses in rural areas. And if it costs three billion or if it costs even more than that, so be it. It's badly needed. And that's the bottom line. And texture by the time broadband gets around to my area, it will be obsolete. Mm. So worry about that. Well, you might have it next year. You don't know. Uh, some areas uh, will see uh, the rollout uh, uh, immediately and uh, it'll take about seven years, I think, to complete altogether. In total. Mm-hmm. Just going then to your interview with Eve Farrell from uh, the Carry Foundation. Mm. A couple of thoughts on that, Michael. Um Mairead from Drogheda says, you used to be worried about your child being abused by an adult. Now you have to worry that they could be assaulted by people in their friend group. You need to be asking, why is this happening? What is prompting young boys to treat girls in this manner? Yeah, well, I suppose uh, it's uh, distorted thinking uh, and uh, it's always distorted thinking, whether it's uh, an adult or a child that abuses somebody else, uh, whether it's the child's father or uncle or brother or some other relative. They're usually male uh, that are are abusers, uh, but of course it it, uh, could be a female relative. It's usually somebody who's known to the child, uh, but uh, sometimes uh, that's not the case. Michelle says that she found the interview very disturbing, uh, hearing about teens being sexually abused by people their own age group. The parents need to sit their sons down and teach them about consent and respect. Mm. Margaret says you have to wonder about the moral compass of our young people. Is there a connection with the break away from religion, she wonders. I, I I don't know. I mean, I, I think uh, there's been uh, enough concern about uh, people uh, being abused by uh, the religious, yes. by the clergy and by the religious. And uh, let's uh, not forget uh, that uh, the Children at Risk group in Ireland, the Carey Foundation, deal with uh, children who've been abused uh, from the age of seven up to 12. So we're not necessarily talking about teens. Yes, Anne found it very hard listening to the interview. I'm um, talking about the huge number of children that Carrie helps on a yearly basis. And these, uh, Anne says, are just the ones that come forward for help, Michael. What about the children who are too scared to look for help? Uh, that lady and her colleagues and those who work in the sector really are lifesavers for these children and Anne says that it breaks her heart to think that there's such a demand for their services. Indeed. Okay. We'll go on then to um, the Verona Murphy situation. We had a, or a fair, whatever you want to call it, controversy. Uh, a listener rang in and just says, what I find very strange about this controversy is that Fine Gael were so condemning of Senator Clifford, the Fianna Fáil candidate, but yet they are defending the comments of Ms Murphy. And I find that very uncomfortable to digest. Either they think that something is wrong or they don't. Yeah, well, it seems as though uh, Verona Murphy has... Uh the backing of uh, the Taoiseach and uh, the Thonged, uh, Leo Radker and Simon Coveney both speaking uh, in support of her yesterday. Uh, it's not a, a view that's uh, shared by all and uh, some concern was expressed at uh, the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party meeting last night by Fergus O'Dowd, a local Fine Gael TD, uh, and indeed Bernard Durkin and others who supported him in saying that he didn't want to share a room as uh, part of the Parliamentary Party with 
with uh, people who had uh, views uh, that uh, didn't uh, allow for uh, different uh, people uh, and uh, differences in people for that matter. We'll hear more about that a little bit later on. Okay, just going back to uh, a topic we were covering during the week in relation to Lisa Smith, uh, Michael. Uh, We had a text in from Anthony who says, I wonder, Michael, did you hear the piece with the member of the Muslim community in Dundalk who painted a very different picture of Lisa Smith and her imminent return to Dundalk, stating that she could not use the excuse of external radicalisation as she was already radical in her thinking when she was part of their community. I think her words and the knowledge of this individual would be far more informed than that of Mr Fitzpatrick and what he claims to know about her, says Anthony in RD. On the same topic... I'm not sure... Peter Fitzpatrick did uh, claim to know very much about Lisa Smith other than what uh, her family had told him. But anyway, okay. Uh, John Dockler, just on the same topic, says that in relation to Lisa Smith, I don't believe that the government should pay for her to return home. I think that she left this country on her own accord and should make her way home the same way. And that is what is annoying this particular Dundalk listener about the situation. Okay, perhaps so. Uh, I don't know if uh, the government will have any choice if uh, she's uh, deported by the Turkish authorities. Going then, if we can, to flooding, uh, Michael, and we've had plenty of that in recent times. Sean phoned in. uh, He lives in the Castle Bellingham area and he says that he's over 70 and he just can't understand why this flooding is allowed to happen. He says, if someone would give me a mini digger and a shovel, I would clean out these channels myself on the road. What has gone wrong with this country that road channels can't be cleaned out to release the blockages and flood waters on the road? Why should we pay our motor tax? I'm going to stop paying it, pledges Sean, until these jobs mm. are done. All right. Well, because it's really annoying him. Fair enough. And uh, I'm sure there is uh, some truth in that and many reasons uh, for flooding. Let's talk uh, about uh, the ambulance service in North Louth. It's an issue that was raised in uh, the Shannon yesterday. And uh, the reason for this is uh, that there are no ambulances operating out of the Omeath area of North County Louth and uh, that it has taken over an hour to respond to emergency call-outs on at least six different occasions in the last year in the county. Uh, Of those six occasions, waiting times were between an hour and 18 minutes and an hour and 27 minutes. Uh, Senator Keith uh, Swanick uh, raised this issue, as I say, in uh, the Shannon yesterday. He was responded to by Minister Jim Daly. The National Ambulance Service has three bases in Loud, namely Dundalk, Trahad and RD, from which emergency ambulances and intermediate care services are provided. The National Ambulance Service has been moving to a policy of dynamic deployment where vehicles are strategically located where they are most likely to be required rather than located at a particular station. In this regard, Louth can be served by resources based at neighbouring counties. The adoption of a dynamic deployment approach was recommended in the National Ambulance Service Baseline and Capacity Review, which was published in 2016. The ambulance dispatch points were identified following an analysis of demand based on historical data from the regional control rooms, and there are ongoing reviews of rosters and strategic deployments of ambulances in the region to ensure that deployed resources remain relevant to demand. The baseline and capacity review also identified particular difficulties serving rural areas. The review indicated that the only practical way to improve first response times in rural areas is through voluntary community first responder schemes. The National Ambulance Service continues to work with local CFR groups across the region to enhance services with eight CFR groups currently operating in County Loud. 
the National Ambulance Service also works closely with the Northern Ireland Ambulance Service in order to provide a better and more responsive service for patients in border counties, including County Loud. Cooperation is formalised in two memorandum of understanding signed in September 2019. Okay, so there's many factors uh, playing into the service. The Minister went on to say uh, that it is one of the most progressive aspects of uh, the health service. Unfortunately, there will always be outliers and uh, that can lead uh, to some of the problems uh, that were complained about. Okay, Michael, if I can go to Peter, who phoned in, wanted us to highlight an incident that happened on Tuesday night, says that he was driving in Drogheda town and that uh, it was about nine o'clock at night on the particular stretch of road, he said. Before he knew it, he was upon a man who was jogging on the roadway, Michael, Mm -hmm. completely in black uh, coming towards him. And he said, he was so close to him within inches of hitting the man and it really gave him an awful fright and he just wanted to get the message across that even though you may be in a town and there may be street lights it doesn't mean that a motorist is going to see you if you are in black first of all he couldn't understand that the man was actually jogging on the roadway when the footpath was there and also secondly completely in black nothing reflective Mm. on him and he said it really he was very shook up after it himself and just wanted us to highlight it to please warn people and send out the message because sometimes people just don't think. Yeah, that's true. So I'll finish mm-hmm. on that one. Okay, now. thanks for that. And uh, thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now we'll talk about uh, the gangs and uh, the drugs and uh, the feud and uh, the guns or issues related to it. More importantly, how it's affecting uh, the community. East Mead is a community left clinging on by its fingertips, uh, according uh, to Fine Gael Councillor Sharon Tolan, who's come into us uh, this morning. Uh, a very good morning to you and uh, really? thanks for joining us. Uh, it was a dramatic headline in the Mead Chronicle this week, uh, but uh, yeah. not it surprising to, 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 to read that that's how you feel following how you sounded when you spoke to us after the most recent killing. Yeah, well, just to put it into context, I suppose, um, you know, you, you'll see by the quotation marks that I, I didn't quite say East Meath is, is left no. uh, uh, clinging to its fingertips. Really, the conversation that I had uh, was in relation to the wider community and the country in general. Um, I came under criticism for the way I handled um, uh, the situation uh, from some quarters. People felt I was a bit too soft uh, under the circumstances. Um, I had a lot of of, um, of phone calls and messages from people who felt I handled it terribly well. Um, But there there were those who criticised the way I handled it. Um, I suppose from a community perspective just, you know, just, I'm sorry I'm a, a little bit confused Handle what? Is people this felt a, I was I was a bit soft uh, when, when, you when, spoke, I, when you spoke to me after the yeah, killing of Richie Carberry yeah, oh God, yeah. I, I thought you sounded distraught I was just yeah, saying to you a few yeah, months well, ago people felt I, I was a bit soft I'd also mm. I'd given an interview to RTE and a number of journalists had recorded mm. that um, and you know it, it's there on, on independent.ie mm. uh, they published it um, you know I did ask people appeal to people to remember that he was a husband and mm. a father. Um, and you know, a, a neighbour as such. Uh, I mean, yeah. you, you live at the back of uh, the family home. In, in, in a state, yeah. 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 Uh, 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 you were telling us, uh, I think, uh, the day after the killing uh, that uh, you passed Pass by him and his wife on the beach. Yeah, uh, you, you know... Said good morning. His yeah. wife from going to school and yeah. the children going from going to school. Yeah. So uh, this was... Uh, upsetting for you apart from anything else because they're people you know absolutely absolutely very upsetting Mm. but Mm. I I think what was more upsetting following 
um, in those days and certainly the, the, the mm. couple of weeks afterwards. The kind of conversation that's been had um, and commentary, you know, has perhaps gone down a road of, um, you know, they're all a bunch of scumbags. They should all just shoot each other. And, you know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Mm. Um, I don't believe in that perspective. I really don't. I strongly believe. And this was my, my comment about clinging by our fingertips. I think that we really will cross a line if those of us, there are more decent law abiding citizens in this country than there are criminals. And if we value some people's lives less than other people's lives, we're crossing a line. If we decide that the life of Richie Carberry is worth less than anybody else's life, we're crossing a line and we're clinging right now by our fingertips to a civilised society. And if we cross that line, we won't be civilised anymore. Mm. You know, we may as well hang up our boots and say, "Okay, go ahead and and, and have a free for all. Okay, well, that's... uh a, a laudable perspective, uh, but there is uh, the other side to it. Uh, not that one person's life uh, is of less value than another, but Richie Carberry, by his actions, put your life at risk, perhaps, uh, and your children's lives Absolutely. at risk, uh, and uh, other yeah. people in the community. Yeah, and I, I would, I would say that you know I, the commentary certainly from the Gardaí, uh, the senior Gardaí, was that he was a known criminal, that he was quite high up in in certain circles. Um, my question would be, why was he on the streets at all then? If he mm. was a known cr- criminal, they had evidence that he was a known criminal. Mm. Why put us at risk or his life mm. at risk by leaving him on the streets? Mm. Um, you know, I, I definitely think there needs to be um, a, a total, you know, lockdown now and removal of these people off our streets for the sake of their lives, our lives, neighbours. Somebody will end up hurt. Um, but if we dehumanise them and decide that their their life isn't worth a damn, um, you know, how can we appeal to them to say, put down the guns, well, stop the shooting, you know, somebody you know. innocent will get hurt. Mm. At the end of the day, there are children grieving a dad. They have to mm. go into school, they have to look into their friend's eyes, yeah, yeah. knowing what headlines yeah. were written. Mm. Um and at the end of the day, I would prefer my children to look into those children's eyes and have compassion. Yeah, and the informed reporting on Richard mm. Carberry was yeah. that he was involved in the drugs trade in Coolock uh, and then was known to be involved in the drugs trade in the Drogheda area, if you like, and the few that's ongoing, uh, and uh, is uh, said to have had a, a stake uh, in that cannabis hall, for example, and there were other stories uh, attributed to him. Uh, and we can name Richie Carberry today because... He's deceased. Mm. Uh, but there's plenty of names that are known to people that, that can't be said on the radio mm. uh, because uh, we live in a, a democracy and uh, the judicial system is such uh, that everybody is innocent until proven guilty. So when you talk about lifting people and locking them away for their safety and our safety and everybody's safety, how do you manage to do that? Well, I don't see how the Gardaí can state categorically that somebody is absolutely at the top of, of, of gangland criminality without the evidence. Um, whether it's sit outside their houses, whether it's stop them in their cars, day in, day out, uh, checking, checking, checking until they find the evidence to put them away. Whether it's cab that comes in and says, why, how is he, how is he driving that car? How, how is his wife driving that car? Uh, we, we have mechanisms there to do this. It's just not being done at the moment. Mm. Um, the because, other issue, because of the value of the car, I take it. Well, uh, just, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, mm-hmm. but uh, the, the, the other issue in relation to, I suppose, in the article there is Leytown Garda Station. Um, 
you know, it's like a sleepy little village guard station. It's a mm. it's a bungalow. Well, it used to uh, be a sleepy little village. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's no longer. <laughs> yeah, and, and according mm, to, mm. to 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 our our, our latest figures, um, it's serving a population of eighteen thousand three hundred ninety nine. Mm. Like that is Laytown, Bettystown, Mornington East, and the southern environs of Drogheda, which is in County Meath. Mm. Eighteen thousand three hundred ninety nine. That's set to increase by twenty twenty six according to our count, draft county development plan, to 23,199 for Laytown. Which is station. bigger than a lot of towns in the it's, country. We're the third largest mm-hmm. town in the county. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's Navan and Ashburn and then ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, we currently have a staff in that station of 20. Uh, there's four units of, of three of, of a list mm-hmm. here. 11 uniformed guardie, two uniformed sergeants, one office, one in the office, no clerical assistance, one detective sergeant, three detectives, one who's permanently on paperwork and two plain clothes. Mm. Uh, the target is 16 Garda per thousand popula- head of population. Mm. If that's the case, Leighton Garda Station should have a Garda, a Garda presence of 288 okay. versus 20. Now, there is something seriously wrong there. But, yeah, I, I mean, uh, that's where they're based. Uh, I mean, you're being served by Ashburn and by Drogheda, certainly in relation to this. At least that's what we're being told. The division. The mm. division. Mm. Oh, certainly. And in relation to, to mm. this particular uh, um, case, um, I know there's a lot of resources have been put into it mm-hmm. and there's been great successes. I mean, it, it, you know, to see three more guns off the streets is is uh, is very welcome. Uh, cocaine, uh, cannabis and, and all the rest. It's It's fantastic. More of that is what we want to see. But in general, people want to see Gardaí on our streets. Mm. Like in Drogheda, in the town of Drogheda, you know, you can't walk down the street of Drogheda without bumping into Gardaí constantly. It is fantastic. People feel safer. We want to see that in East Meath. We want to see that in Leytown and Bettystown. You know, I have calls from people where, you know, you have youths um, turning up in gangs in Grange Rath. Uh, you have... I've have. A, Another serious incident, uh, a lady getting off a bus at nine o'clock in the evening, attacked um, and robbed. Mm. Um, Serious incidents that need Garda presence constantly, proper community Garda Mm. presence. Somebody got off a bus uh, and was beaten to a pulp, Mm. uh, a case of mistaken identity, uh, as uh, we heard a couple of weeks ago. They thought it was uh, Richie Carby. That was uh, after the first attack on him last March. Innocent bystander. Mm. But it is an increase. I mean, I I applaud uh, the Garda Commissioner in the resources that have been put into Drogheda Town. But Drogheda Town is bigger than just down the town. Mm. You know, you have the wider Drogheda area and the East Meath area. Um, These issues have spilled out. The drugs issue is mm. everywhere. It's in well, every single Well, the Drogheda feud has resulted in two killings, uh, and neither of them Drogheda, one in Clara Head and the yeah. other in Betty Sound. Yeah. Yeah. What, what are your children saying about this? <sighs> my Two of my children are a little bit older, but the younger mm. one would be very, very concerned. Mm. Um, you know, have been asked, you know, is it safe? Has the person been mm. caught? Like, how do we know that person won't come into our estate? Mm. Um, those kinds of questions are, are asked. Um, yeah, it, it's... And, and how do you answer it? Mm. Do you know what I mean? You, you can't answer it yeah. until the person is 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 arrested. Mm. Um, you do try to explain that. Well, mm. you know, to my knowledge, nobody in our estate is involved in that. But you never really know what's going on behind closed doors mm. either. Um, so it is. There's, there's a real concern. But but the one thing, the one message that I did give my own children, and they'll kill me because they hate me talking about them okay, in a yeah. personal manner, yeah. was when they went into school. 
to make sure they look at those kids with compassion mm. um, that they're grieving they're not responsible for what their dad did they're grieving and to look at those people those kids with compassion um, and that's something I think we all need to do we all need to stop dehumanising these, these criminals because it's certainly the people with the guns in their hands have dehumanised them that's how they're taking lives so lightly uh, and so easily so if we keep reminding everybody that these are families that are being impacted children left to pick up the pieces while they're grieving pick up the pieces of headlines of commentary and we need to be careful of the commentary that we that we do have mm. and is that what's happening are people uh, treating uh, the wife and kids with compassion I I, I would hope I would hope mm. I'm, I'm as I said I'm not close so mm. you know haven't haven't asked that mm. um, I do believe that there would be school supports all in place as well um, mm. in relation to helping them Um just like there would be for, for any child who, who loses a parent tragically. Um, there are, are great supports in our schools to, to assist children. Um, but yeah, look, at it, it was just the commentary, I suppose, in general. Um, and the couple of messages that I got kind of slate me that it was a bit soft. I'm not mm. soft on crime. By mm. any means, I'm not soft on crime. But these are lives um, and lives have been destroyed. Mm. Uh, those two killings, the, the wider impact on children, family, mothers, wives, brothers, sisters and everybody mm. else. You know, it has a wider impact. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, uh, you, you've got to look at, at what happened. It was a terrible crime. Uh, mm. Somebody was murdered. Uh, mm. Somebody was shot dead, uh, shot in the on, back. On, uh, on the street yeah. of... Mm. It's a real family housing estate, Castle Martin. Do you know what I mean? You know, I spoke to people who had brought their children um, trick-or-treating because the house next door had a fantastic display um, of decorations and were knocking on the doors, you know, Mm. in and around the estate uh, just whatever, a week, a week or so beforehand uh, for Halloween. So it it has really floored people um, how close it came mm. um, and how much danger people were in. Mm. But it, is it that people are jubilant about an execution? I mean, do they see that as justice? Uh, because uh, that's back to that mentality of an eye for an eye, isn't well, it? Well, that's, mm. that's the thing. That's Look, at, uh, you know, th- there will always mm. be somebody who will have that mentality. Mm. Um, but as I said, if we dehumanise these people, if we hold their lives uh, in less value mm. than anybody else, we may as well just hang up our boots because we've no credibility then in saying to these criminals, put down the guns, mm. put down the guns once and for all. Mm. It's it's not ending. It's clearly not ending good for anybody. Um, but look, the wider message to the Gardaí mm. is we need more of them on the streets, particularly in East Meath and the Leytown, Bettystown area. And it's happening in our midst. Uh, I mean, we can be very critical, and I'm sure we have been very critical, of how this issue is being policed and uh, that these people are acting this way in front of our faces. Uh, but it, it, it's in front of everybody, isn't it? I, I mean, uh, there's lots of people who see what's going on and must have had questions, uh, not just about this individual, but many of the people who are involved in, in this criminality. Well, I would say to people that, I mean, and I often get calls, um, often get calls at all hours to say such and such is happening or this has happened or I've passed a child who's smoking a joint or 
I said, well, I can't go and arrest them. Mm. We need to be helping the Gardaí. We really do. We need to be picking up the phone as soon as we see something that is suspicious, that is wrong. We need to, because they will respond, but they need to have that intel. They can't, they don't have a crystal ball. They can't be everywhere all the time. Mm. So pick up the phone. I had an incident last year outside the school where my kids go waiting to pick them up and it was during that that whole um, incident where there was uh, gang related uh, incidents from Balbriggan and, and down on the train and that, mm. that young guy was badly beaten and there were a group of, of young lads yep. waiting outside the school mm. when I was down there and I knew they weren't from the area yeah. and everybody else sitting mm. in their cars waiting to collect their kids yeah. knew they weren't from the area and I rang the guardie within minutes the van pulled up and they were lifted off the street what are you doing what are mm-hmm. you hanging around for you know so mm-hmm. we have to be vigilant we have to report crime as soon as we see it we can't just become um, complacent complacent mm-hmm. that's the word mm-hmm. we can't you know because uh, it, it. we've got to crack down and we've got to help them okay thanks for coming into us Thank this you. morning that's uh, Fine Gael Councillor Sharon Tolan Michael Reed on LMFM Now, the ongoing accusations of intolerance and racism against uh, the by-election candidate in Wexford, Verona Murphy, who is standing for Fine Gael, uh, continue uh, and indeed has led to a very bizarre situation, probably the first time in history where a politician doesn't want uh, to speak to the media, let alone somebody who's standing in an election. Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News, and a political columnist with the Meath Chronicle is on the line with us. Good morning to you, Gavin, and thanks for joining us. Uh, Not at all, Michael. How are you? The Taoiseach and the Taunisha have both spoken publicly against uh, about Verona Murphy in support of her, mm. uh, but... Uh, I'm not sure that she enjoys the support of uh, the parliamentary party. Uh, the party met last night uh, and uh, there were some different views expressed. Yeah, that's right. And, and uh, the, the opinions of Fergus O'Dowd are something that are, that are attracting some, some headlines in the Irish Times this morning. I've been speaking to one member of the Fine Gael party this morning and just asking, you know, what does he make of the whole affair right now? And um, he said that he wouldn't want to be going even on, let alone having to go on the canvas trail, he wouldn't want to be going on any programme at all. Um, any kind of current affairs thing, a show like your own or a uh, you know, mm-hmm. something like the Tonight Show, wouldn't want to go on any of those because he said, if someone genuinely asked me, if I were in Wexford, would I vote for her on a panel programme, they'd have to admit that they wouldn't uh, because they, they, they simply find the views that she's um, espoused in not one, not two, but three different interviews uh, to be so reprehensible and so objectionable to what they themselves stand for that they simply couldn't even vote for her, let alone going out and in all good conscience asking other people to do so. Um, Fergus O'Dowd is not one of those TDs but, uh, who I'm talking about, but he did speak uh, quite vocally at the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party yesterday afternoon, suggesting that he would, quite frankly, refuse to share that room or that membership of the Parliamentary Party with any TD who had espoused views so intolerant, uh, intolerant around immigration. I know he wasn't the, the only one that uh, Bernard Durkin, who represents a constituency like Kildare North, which has quite a large immigrant population, was also very, very vocal and suggested that there, there couldn't be any place for Fine Gael to normalise or legitimise uh, this sort of commentary. And certainly while Leo Varadkar and Simon Coveney publicly are trying to give her the backing, I think privately everyone else mm. just wants the campaign to, to, to be privately kind of run down at this stage. It's too late to replace her on the by-election ticket but that they would quite like that the best possible salvaging of all of this to happen would be for effectively for ministers to stop going down to canvas in Wexford, allow Verona Murphy to, to go through the motions, to continue canvassing, but that quietly the campaign would, would sink like a stone and that they'd, they'd quite like not to ever 
think or talk about it anymore. Uh, and uh, the Taoiseach uh, was uh, speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday. He was responding to Breed Smith, uh, who was very vocal about this. And he was saying, I know more about racism uh, than perhaps you do or most people do. And perhaps uh, that's right. Uh, but is uh, there any merit to that point or is he trying to defend the indefensible? Uh, I think to a certain degree, if you were to ask even others within his own party, they'd say it's defending the indefensible. I think what was notable is that um, after those comments in the Dáil that you mentioned, he went to Zagreb because he's there uh, this morning, uh, yeah. among other things, trying to make sure that Helen McEntee gets elected as a vice president of the European People's Party. Uh, but he did a, a media interview there with reporters for about 10 minutes, uh, and th- that whole 10 minutes was almost entirely occupied around the position of Verona Murphy and how exactly the party could um, defend all of this. And you could see visually Leo Varadkar was very frustrated that at a meeting of of European leaders, at the meeting of Europe's biggest political family, where they're supposed to be talking around the diversity of Europe and ensuring that there is a a tolerant attitude towards migrants, that this scandal was following him over there and that he couldn't speak to reporters without getting completely dragged into the mire of whether it's appropriate for his party to stand by a candidate like Verona Murphy. Interestingly, one of the the most common defences that he put forward, both on Irish soil and to the journalists yesterday, was that, hey, we're not the only ones who have issues with our candidates, that Lorraine Clifford Lee in Dublin mm. Fingal has also had issues where she's been, uh, you know, called to account for things that she said about marginalised groups, and if Fianna Fáil said that her apology is good enough for them, then Verona Murphy's apology should be good enough for me, but I think the, the point remains that mm. um, Fine Gael slightly took themselves into a hole on this one, because and Verona Murphy said her first comments on the record that were objectionable about this on RT Radio on Sunday, um, you know, it was put forward and Damien English tried to suggest that she had simply sort of misspoken or that she wasn't talking about migrants to Ireland specifically. She was talking about more general issues. But actually, it turns out that she made very similar comments on exactly the same strain to both the Irish Times and the Wexford People. So it can't just be written off as an isolated incident. And although Lorraine um, Clifford Lee's comments, mm. objectionable as they were, they were all eight or nine years ago, whereas uh, Verona Murphy's comments were all eight or nine hours or days ago. And that, that is the difficulty in this case. Uh, and if Lorraine Clifford Lee's comments were wrong, two wrongs don't make a, a right. Yeah, but precisely. Yeah, uh, yeah, but I thought yeah. what, was, what was interesting too about the, the Lorraine Clifford Lee incident was that um, she almost created another precedent for Verona Murphy because uh, she went to, uh, approached Pavi Point, the, the, the Traveller and Roman representative group, uh, and sought a meeting with them and went along last Friday morning and then, mm. uh, you know, agreed to speak to reporters outside, uh, not at her own behest, but rather at, at the behest of, of us, the reporters. And afterwards, we spoke to, to Pavi Point and they said that, you know, in their 35 years of dealing with different politicians and plenty of politicians over the last three decades have said objectionable things about travellers or things which Pavi Point would consider plainly racist. Um, No politician had ever approached them afterwards to try and apologise and to educate themselves better uh, around traveller issues before Lorraine Clifford Lee had done so. So to some sense, maybe she created a precedent where if you're seen to try and approach the marginalised group, then suddenly everything is fine afterwards. But that only leads to a separate issue for Fine Gael because um, Charlie Flanagan, who is the Director of Elections for the Wexford by-election, then went and arranged a visit for Verona Murphy to go and meet some asylum seekers at a reception centre the other night, which only then drags Charlie Flanagan further into it because he then would be accused of manipulating or abusing his powers because Mm. no other campaign manager would have the ability to arrange a visit to an asylum seekers reception centre except for the Minister for Justice and not only then is he mm. perhaps you know be accused of, of infantilising or, or politicising asylum seekers by using them as political props but that he in turn can also legitimately be accused of uh, abusing his powers by, by trying to stage this, this media up for his under fire candidate. And to some degree was by Breed Smith who said that as a, a TD she could not 
uh, gain access uh, to the same extent that Verona yeah. Murphy had. Yeah, uh, slightly disingenuous of the Taoiseach to suggest that she might have been able to get in had she simply just called slightly earlier ahead. I think that if, if anyone, basically what he's suggesting is that if a TD gave good enough notice that mm. they'd be able to walk in off the street and, and to meet people when in fact, you know, Verona Murphy is not a TD, she's not a councillor, she doesn't hold any public office at all, she's simply an aspiring political candidate. Uh, so it, it's a little bit disingenuous or creates false equivalences to say that a TD could have got in if they'd only called further ahead when in fact Verona Murphy didn't need to call ahead herself, got a minister to do so and was able to walk in off the street as no more than a private citizen. All right, uh, and Fergus O'Dowd is reported by the Irish Times to have said that Fine Gael should have zero tolerance for people who attack immigrants, travellers, the homeless and other vulnerable minorities uh, and perhaps uh, that's uh, why we're reading another headline uh, today in the Irish Independent, Fine Gael in the dark on bullying case against candidate or if you go inside the paper the next headline is pretty dramatic Fine Gael ISIL row candidate at centre of bullying claim by female staff member, I mean uh, this is very bad news for Fine Gael. Uh, it's no wonder that uh, the Taoiseach has been asked questions about this uh, whilst he's in Croatia. Yeah and he'll be even more annoyed because he's got another uh, press conference this afternoon he's holding a private bilateral meeting with the Croatian Prime Minister the two will be addressing reporters afterwards and you can only guess that having been annoyed at the 10 minute grilling he got at the EPP summit yesterday he's going to be even more annoyed to have another European counterpart standing beside him while he feels these questions um, it's bad news for Fine Gael on two fronts firstly because it actually shows that the party's vetting of candidates is really way for thin so much as to be non-existent I mean they claim to have been in the dark about this but yet Rona Murphy has been trying to present herself or to get herself added to the general election ticket forget about the by-election but she wanted to be added to the general election ticket for close to a year now she had a private Twitter account that had been set up with a kind of a Fine Gael branding she was entirely ready to go she wanted to have all of the stuff you know uh, oven ready if you like uh, ready to, to launch herself as a Fine Gael candidate so she's had a long-standing engagement or relationship with Fine Gael this bullying uh, incident came to light and was published in the Irish Examiner last February it would have appeared pretty prominently in any Google search of her name uh, the idea that Fine Gael were apparently unaware of it until it was pointed out to them yesterday by the, the Irish Independent is uh, curious and most people would say probably fanciful. Um, the other reason why it's bad news for Fine Gael, and this is a point again that's been made by some members of the Parliamentary Party to me this morning, is that while they would privately like the campaign to basically sink like a stone for ministers to give us uh, the wide shift now and for everything to just simply kind of quietly be wound down, mm. they are slightly fearful that uh, all of the um, media attention that has been paid to Verona she might win the seat. <laughs> well, they, 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 well, they don't expect her to yeah. win the seat, mm. but that they, they certainly now, they as they see it, a risk that she could actually do alarmingly well. They don't mm. like they don't see it as possible to winning the seat. They reckon she'll be outpolled by Malcolm Byrne, and mm. that Malcolm mm. Byrne, if if not on the first count, will certainly get in pretty easily on transfers afterwards but the question is does Verona Murphy get a pretty sizable chunk of the first preference vote given that so many of her own party colleagues now want absolutely nothing to do with her and if she is seen as getting a very large chunk of the vote then they would worry that it might give grist to some other uh, fringe candidates not not only in in other political parties or independents but even those on the fringes of Fine Gael who are looking to try and make a mark in seats where they are not the incumbent candidates who might be inclined to say similar stuff because it gets them onto the radar and manages to punch through the noise a little bit and their concern is that if Verona Murphy 
is accidentally seen as doing quite well in all of this, mm-hmm. uh, that it could create a similar mould to, to Peter Casey last year, who, as we know, was was initially very reluctant to embrace the support that he got for his comments around marginalised groups, uh, but then decided to go, uh, you know, gung-ho and, and fully embraced that, and then he ended up getting 23% of the national vote. And, and the worry is that if that's replicated at these local levels, then in the general election, it'll suddenly be seen as politically sellable to say similar things and to go looking for support on that basis. OK, I'm told Helen McEntee is uh, quietly confident. Can we expect her to be selected as uh, the Vice President of uh, the European People's Party? Yeah, very unlikely that she wouldn't be. There are 10 Vice Presidents uh, up for for positions up for grabs and only 12 candidates, but generally speaking it's it's seen as as a pretty much a a shoe-in that Ireland always tends to occupy some significant role in the EPP. Uh, Dara Murphy is currently is just gone as the Director of Elections. He's still a Fine Gael TD. Uh, previously, Lucinda Creighton, before she fell out with Fine Gael, was also a Vice President and there is a kind of a long-standing history of Ireland being to the forefront there and most people would be very surprised after the uh, the three years that she served as the Junior Minister for EU Affairs if Helen McEntee was not a shoe-in for those roles, but we'll find out in a couple of hours' time. Alright, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Gavin Riley, Political Correspondent with Virgin Media News and Political Column with the Meath Chronicle. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Daily Mail reports uh, today that uh, a man and a woman convicted of talking on their mobile phones while driving had their convictions quashed yesterday after a High Court judge said they hadn't been allowed to mount a defence, uh, that the penalty notice never arrived at their home. This has led uh, to the front page headline of the Daily Mail today Penalty points lost in post is a defence. Susan Gray, chairperson of PARC, a public against road carnage group, is on the line. Good morning to you, Susan, and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. There does seem to be a reasonable argument being put forward here by the people involved. There were two separate uh, convictions uh, that uh, were quashed yesterday. The man uh, who was involved in this said uh, he he was guilty. Uh, He was uh, talking on his phone while driving, but he he never received uh, the fixed charge in the and had he done so, uh, he'd have paid the fine. But instead, uh, he got five penalty points and a higher fine as a result, which he felt was unfair. Yeah, and there's also a a, pers- a case where a speeding, a person caught speeding, that he's claiming he didn't get the fixed charge notice either. So there's a mobile phone offence um, and a speeding offence. Both of these cases are were before the courts. So this this problem has been going on, Michael, since mm. as far back as 2013. We met with Minister um, Francis Fitzgerald, who was Minister for Justice at the time, and Minister Leo Faradkar, now the Tisha, he was Minister for Transport at the time. And we had been going around the courts monitoring and reporting what we were seeing. And we told both meetings, along with our legal team, on the day in 2014, that what we were seeing was many drivers claiming they didn't receive fixed charge notice and the judges striking out the case for speeding, for holding a mobile mm. phone. And we put it to the Minister for Justice at the time. We asked, could the fixed charge notices not be sent by registered post? Mm. And that would prevent a person in court being able to claim that they didn't receive the fixed charge notice, which has been sent by ordinary post. Uh, and now, sh- she asked her legal team that were there mm. 
and their argument was that 70% of fixed charge notices were, were being paid on receipt of a, a fixed charge notice sent by ordinary post. So it was only 30% that were going to court and claiming and that it would be, for want of a better word, uh, in their eyes, a waste of money sending them all by registered post when 70% were paying by ordinary post. Our argument back to them and on the day was they would get their money back mm. straight away. And we're talking about saving lives in our roads here. We're seeing the same repeat offenders going through the courts, coming out with a clean licence, getting not getting the five penalty points that's due to them. And the more we attend courts, the more we've seen it happening. Now, um, Minister Shane Ross amended legislation in 2016, whereby, and it was supposed to close this loophole, whereby the judge would not accept a defence in court if a person said they didn't receive a fixed charge notice. They wouldn't accept it as a mm. defence and the case would go ahead. Now, lo and behold, a High Court judge on 8th of October looked at these two cases that you mentioned earlier on because they had appealed the, the, the fact that their defence was not acceptable in court and they did not receive, they claim they did not receive the fixed charge notice. They should have, if they had have received it, they would have paid the fine and not hmm. been summoned to court. So the High Court judge on 8th of October ruled that this was unconstitutional. The road traffic law the Road Traffic Act 2010, mm-hmm. as amended in 2016, was unconstitutional. Now, this High Court judge gave the the state and the Minister for Transport time to consider whether to appeal her decision or to amend legislation. And she said she wouldn't do deliver her final conclusion until the 19th of November, yesterday. Mm-hmm. Right Now, she ruled, and it beggars belief that the state now has asked for more time to consider it. While over 28,000 it's reported of people being issued for fixed charge notices and going to court are getting away with walking out of court without any penalty points. And the situation will... Well, possibly 28,000 28, people would be able to make uh, the same claim, it, it would seem, uh, because of how the law doesn't distinguish between those who choose not to pay and those who weren't given notice to pay. But in the meantime, Michael, while the Minister is still deciding what to do to rectify this problem, the problem is going to escalate. And any cases before the court's the judge will either decide to adjourn the case, strike it out, or dismiss it. Now, we have reports lately that some judges are are dismissing the cases. It is an absolute nightmare in our courts. And we would call on Minister Shane Ross to act immediately, decide whether to appeal it or amend legislation to stop this happening. Kicking the can further down the road is only going to cause more and more 
problems in the court. Or to uh, send the fixed notices by registered post, as you said at the outset, uh, because I suppose everybody knows uh, that uh, letters get lost in the post. There's a couple of arguments uh, in the paper today about if you live in an apartment block, it could be put into the wrong letterbox, or if you're out of the country, uh, the uh, due date may pass before you return home. You don't get the opportunity to pay, but if it's registered, well then, you've obviously received it and there's no way of arguing otherwise. If it's registered, they will catch a lot more people than they're catching at present. Anybody can go to court now and claim this. It will be an epidemic. They they had a chance to sort this out years ago when we reported it. At a joint meeting with Minister Varadkar and Minister Fitzgerald. And here we are now with the situation getting worse and worse with ad hoc apparently ad hoc legislation put into place in 2016, an amendment to 2010 Act, which the High Court judges really now is unconstitutional. What kind of people are working doing this legislation when it falls now? It does seem bizarre. We have to leave it there, though. Our time has okay, run out on us today. Thank you very much indeed. Susan Gray, Chairperson of Park, the Public Against Road Carnage Group. That's all we have time for, as I say. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 